Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Novavax fourth quarter 2020 financial results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Ms. Sylvia Taylor. You may begin. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you to all of you who have joined today's call to discuss our fourth quarter and full year 2020 operational highlights and financial results. A press release announcing our results is currently available on our website at novavax.com and an audio archive of this conference call will be on, available on our website later today. We're also filing our 10K this afternoon. Joining me today are Stan Erk, President and CEO, who will provide an overview of our progress to date. Dr. Gregory Glenn, President of Research and Development, who will provide an update on our global clinical trial activity and regulatory pathway. John Trezino, Chief Commercial Officer and Chief Business Officer, who will update us on our manufacturing scale-up, partnerships, and advanced purchase agreements, and Gregory Cavino, Chief Financial Officer, who will briefly highlight our financial status. Additionally, Dr. Philip Dubovsky, Chief Medical Officer, will be available for the Q&A section at the end of today's call. Before we begin with prepared remarks, I need to remind you that we will be making forward-looking statements during this teleconference that could include financial, clinical, or commercial projections. Statements relating to future financial or business <clears throat> performance, conditions, or strategy, and other financial and business-related matters, including expectations regarding revenue, operating expenses, cash usage, and clinical develop development and anticipated milestones are forward-looking statements within the meaning of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. Novavax cautions that these forward-looking statements are subject to numerous assumptions, risks, and uncertainties, which change over time. With that, I'd now like to hand the call over to Stan. For those of you following the accompanying slides, please turn to slide three. Thank you, Sylvia, and thank you to everyone for joining us this evening. I'd like to make some opening remarks regarding how we've progressed as a company and reflect on where we are headed uh, in this coming year. Following that, we'll take some time for questions. So the past year has been a whirlwind. We have completely changed the company in ways that would normally take several years to accomplish. While many businesses in the world have slowed down due to the pandemic, we've done the opposite. Everything about our company has changed. Before we get into our presentation, I'd like to thank all of our staff for the nonstop effort that each of them has made for an entire year. I'm afraid to say that I don't see a slowdown anytime soon. But having said that, everyone understands the importance of our mission and can take satisfaction from the accomplishments that have been made so far and know that they are part of a once in a lifetime mission. I'd like to start our presentation by recounting for you a short list of what our staff has accomplished since our last annual earnings report. We've enrolled over 50,000 participants in COVID-19 clinical trials in the spring of last year, we completed enrollment in a phase one, two trial in the US and Australia. Between September 
and February, we initiated three efficacy trials in the U.S., the U.K., and South Africa, enrolling almost 50,000 participants. We've shown that our vaccine is 96% effective against the original COVID-19 when tested in the U.K. trial and achieved 86% effectiveness against the U.K. variant strain in that same trial. In the South African trial, where the so-called triple mutant variant was circulating, we showed that our vaccine was 60% effective at preventing COVID disease in the portion of the study population that was HIV negative. What sometimes gets lost in the discussion of our COVID-19 program is that we also completed a phase three pivotal trial for our nanoflu program and met or exceeded all eight of our primary endpoints. We started last year with about 150 employees worldwide. We, we now have approximately 800 employees globally and will likely exceed 1,000 employees sometime this summer. We started last year without any capacity to manufacture product. In the last year, we have built a global network of manufacturing sites and partners in 10 countries whose total capacity for COVID-19 vaccines will exceed 2 billion doses on an annual basis by mid-year. At the beginning of last year, we had $80 million in cash and a financial operating horizon of only six months. In contrast, we ended the year with over $800 million and continued to build our financial strength. We have now secured over $2 billion of funding from our partners, including the U.S. government and CEPI and the Bill and, Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and have purchased commitments for our vaccine representing the potential for several billion dollars in revenue in the next 12 months. The combination of all of these accomplishments adds capacity and expertise that will be the foundation for Novavax over the long term, and most importantly, gives us the opportunity to provide the world, including countries of all income levels, with a safe and effective vaccine that can be used to help end the world's worst pandemic in the last century. We are excited to share more details today on the progress we made during the historic year. I would now like to hand the call over to Greg Glenn to discuss highlights from our clinical development program for 2020 and the beginning of 2021. Thank you, Stan. And uh, maybe we can turn to slide four. Uh, this really has been a remarkable year. Over the past 12 months, we've moved rapidly to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. We first identified a stabilized recombinant full-lake protein, Novavax CoV-2373, which I will call 2373 for short, as our vaccine candidate. We've, we identified this within one month of the SARS-CoV sequence being published. We also demonstrated the key role of our Matrix M adjuvant for induction of potent immune responses when formulated together showed that these components elicited highly protective immunity in animal challenge models. As you will see below, we've moved rapidly through clinical development and now demonstrated the same high level of efficacy in humans. Our scientists are committed to transparency and publication in high quality peer reviewed journals. And we know with satisfaction we've met this goal through multiple manuscripts, a few of which you see here, published in prestigious scientific journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Science, and Nature. So moving to slide five, our recombinant protein subunit-based vaccine, 2373, offers a range of practical benefits, which we expect will optimize and expedite its global distribution. First, our candidate recombinant spike protein was designed to ensure stability 
and as a result can be stored at typical refrigeration temperatures, enabling distribution to standard cold supply chains. Additionally, it's ready to use liquid formulation of both the protein and the adjuvant markedly facilitates the administration of the vaccine. The adjuvant matrix M is a critical feature of the 2373 vaccine, which has both an immune enhancing and dose sparing effect, allowing us to produce more doses of 2373 with less antigen required per dose, while inducing immunity that exceeds that seen from a COVID-19 infection. This greatly augments our global capacity for vaccine manufacture and distribution. On slide six, we provide an overview of our COVID-related clinical trials. The phase one, two safety and immunogenicity trials demonstrated the key role of the adjuvant, dose sparing, and the immune responses that were all well in excess of convalescent sera. The data suggests the hallmark of our vaccine is the induction of high levels of functional immunity and has an excellent safety profile. In addition, this study confirmed the five microgram dose for the antigen. I want to note that there are several other immunogenicity trials that have already or will be starting soon in India, the Czech Republic, and Japan that will help to extend the global access to our vaccine. For today, I'm, for today, I'm going to focus on the results of our efficacy studies. During their conduct, the dramatic evolution of the virus occurred, and we were first to demonstrate efficacy against all three major circulating strains. This has led to vital insight for public health and a unique opportunity to demonstrate the utility of our technology in the face of an evolving COVID-19 virus. Let's begin by talking about our phase three trial in the UK on slide seven. After initiating our trial in September, 2020, with the support of UK Vaccines Task Force and the NIHR registry, we were able to rapidly enroll over 15,000 participants, 27%, of whom were over the age of 65. Our top line interim analysis showed an overall efficacy of 89%. However, during the conduct of this trial, the virus evolved. And against the original COVID strain, similar to the viruses seen in the mRNA trials, we demonstrated best-in-class efficacy of 96%. With the B117 variant, the strain that appeared during the trial, we observed an 86% vaccine efficacy. This latter strain is growing in prominence in the U.S., and it's worth noting that the U.K. data suggests that 2373 will perform well in the U.S. amid rapid viral evolution that's trending heavily in this direction. Although the primary endpoint has been met, additional cases have been collected, and a final analysis will be available in the coming weeks. Considering the pathway to authorization, we initiated a rolling submission with non-clinical data with MHRA in the U.K. We plan to file for authorization by early second quarter after we have gathered sufficient data from our UK trial and completed CMC requirements. Moving now to our phase 2B trial in South Africa on slide 8, we enrolled a diverse study population of about 4,400 participants, including 245 medically stable HIV-positive adults. We achieved our primary efficacy endpoint in the overall population, demonstrating a significant level of efficacy at 49%, including all participants. It's important to note that 2373 also demonstrated 60% efficacy in the population that was HIV negative, representing 94% of the volunteers. During the conduct of the trials I mentioned earlier, the virus evolved, and during surveillance, the South African B1351 variant was widely circulating during our trial, accounting for 93% of sequence cases. 
Although one-third of the study participants were seropositive at baseline, these antibodies did not seem to pre prevent infection with 1351, again suggesting that prior COVID-19 infection may not protect against subsequent infection with the P1531 variant. However, 2373 did offer significant protection even though the vaccine was derived from the original COVID-19 strain. This is not ex unexpected as a qualitatively better and broader response here reflects the lessons learned from the Matrix M adjuvant and nanoflu vaccine that shows in the face of evolution we have these appropriate responses. I would like now to direct your attention to slide nine. We are pleased with the progress we've observed to date with our prevent phase 3FQ trial in the US and in Mexico, which we conducted in partnership with the NIH and the Coronavirus Prevention Network. Briefly, the study design is a two-to-one randomized trial uh, enrolling over 30,000 subjects. You can see the primary endpoint is aligned with our previous trials and our interim analysis will be done with 72 uh, cases and four, 144 final events. Finally, we are encouraged to discover a highly motivated participant population during the enrollment process, and we believe a two-to-one randomized study, as well as the expectation of a crossover element, played a major role in expediting recruitment. If you look at slide 10, we can complete an enrollment within two months of initiating this event-driven trial in December of 2020. And now we are happy to report that we have a diverse study population of 30,000 participants, which is comprised of 20% Latin American, 12% African American, 6% Native American, 5% Asian American, with approximately 13% of the individuals 65 and older. We expect to announce this interim data from the trial in the second quarter, dependent, of course, on the overall attack rate. As of today, we are uh, working to implement a blinded crossover for both our UK phase three and prevent 19 trials. In these blinded crossovers, participants will receive active or placebo opposite to what placebos, the uh, participants initially received while still remaining blinded. This design ensures the integrity of the blinded studies and enables us to continue following participants for the duration of efficacy and safety. For PREVENT-19, our blinded crossover protocol has been submitted to the FDA and the updated protocol, including the details of the crossover have been posted on our website under resources. So moving ahead to slide 11, regarding our regulatory pathway in the US, we are in ongoing discussions with the FDA to align on the data required for initiation of the EUA and continue to provide information to our open IND uh, application. At this time, we expect to complete our EUA filing in the second quarter. Overall, we're very busy on the regulatory front, and we've also began the rolling submission process with multiple other uh, regulatory authorities, including European Medicines Agency, Health Canada, the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration, and New Zealand's MedSafe. We will continue to engage in dialogue with respective regulators as we complete our, our pivotal phase three clinical trials in the UK and US ensuring that we fully address all safety, efficacy, and quality elements required for authorization. As we look to the future for our 2373 clinical program, we'd like to highlight two areas of focus in the coming months. Our six-month boosting protocol taking place in our phase one, two trial in the US and Australia, and the development of a variant strain candidate. On slide 12, you see our phase one, two trial in the US and Australia initiated in May, 2020, provided positive data on 2373's immunogenicity and safety. 
The trials continue to offer valuable clinical insights with some participants now receiving a six-month booth uh, dose to examine the production of functional immune response. Our technical technology is suitable for boosting and agile enough to enable the rapid development of a bivalent vaccine approach that can address an evolving virus. On slide 13, as I mentioned, then we have also made significant strides in addressing the mutations of the COVID-19 arising around the globe, including exploring variant strain vaccines as standalone and bivalent candidates. We are evaluating these candidates in ongoing human primate studies and plan to initiate clinical evaluation in these candidates in mid-2021. We are leveraging the adaptability of both our vaccine technology and the manufacturing processes to evolve our strategy alongside the evolution of the virus. So inclusion on slide 14, we now have two independent trials demonstrating 2373's high level of efficacies at levels similar to, to that seen in the best results against the original virus strain, and efficacy against two variant strains coming out of the viral evolution. We also see an encouraging safety profile. We are proud of the clinical team, as Stan mentioned, that's achieved these milestones with 2373 to date and look forward to additional data in the coming months, including data from the prevent 19. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to John Trezino. Thanks, Greg. I would like to bring your attention to slide 15 now. As you can see from this slide, in the past 12 months, we have built an impressive global supply chain infrastructure that includes both owned and partnered facilities. This network is centered around our own facilities in the Czech Republic and Sweden, partnerships with contract manufacturing organizations in the US, Canada, UK, and Spain, and license agreements in India, South Korea, and Japan. The combined capacity for our COVID-19 vaccine globally will exceed 2 billion doses on an annual basis when we reach full manufacturing capacity, which is expected by about mid-year. This global supply infrastructure securely positions Novavax as an integral part of the global solution to the COVID-19 pandemic. Let me highlight some of the following important points. Novavax CZ in the Czech Republic is a large-scale, state-of-the-art manufacturing facility that is now producing our vaccine antigen. Matrix M is now manufactured at multiple sites globally with sufficiently committed raw materials for our adjuvant component of the vaccine. The strategic partnership with Serum Institute provides significant and immediate manufacturing capacity that will provide access to low and middle income countries. SK Bio and Takeda licensing partnerships offers additional capacity and access into, the, into South Korea and Japan respectively. In addition to the advanced purchase agreement in Canada, we have just recently signed an MOU for expanded manufacturing capacity in Canada at their biologics manufacturing center in Montreal. Now on to the next slide, slide 16. What we all have painfully come to know well this past year is that pandemics have no borders and therefore our response must be on a global scale. This mandated that Novavax respond in multiple ways to ensure fair and equitable access globally. First, as a function of our funding partners around the globe that include the US government, CEPI, UK, and BMGF, 
Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, then for the various countries around the globe that expressed an interest in our vaccine, and finally, country-specific manufacturing partners that allowed our technology to provide additional supply into India, South Korea, and Japan. So, as you can see on this slide, we have various agreements that have been executed to date. Advanced purchase agreements totaling approximately 200 million doses, 110 million doses committed to the U.S. government with the potential for additional procurement, 1.1 billion doses jointly committed by Novavax and Serum Institute to the COVAX facility, and license agreements with Serum Institute, SK Bio, and Takeda. With that, I'll turn it back over to Stan to provide an update regarding our nanoflu program on slide 17. Thanks, John. While we spent the majority of our time and attention this year developing our COVID-19 vaccine candidate, we remain committed to advancing nanoflu through regulatory licensure. We announced a successful completion of our pivotal phase three clinical trial in the first quarter of last year, achieving all primary objectives. Additionally, in November, we published phase two data in the clinical infectious diseases. We are, <coughs> excuse me, we are currently exploring a variety of options related to commercializing nanoflu. These options include developing one or more combination vaccines, such as 2373 and nanoflu, nanoflu and RSV, and potentially all three. Based on data to be generated early this year, the plan is to bring one or more of these candidates into clinical trials later this year. As always, we'll publish results of these studies as they become available. We believe that in the post-pandemic era, seasonal vaccination with combination vaccines will be a large commercial opportunity for our platform. And with that, I will now hand it over to Greg Covino to provide our financial results. Thanks, Dan. Hi, everybody. If you could please turn to slide 18. So I think our press release does a pretty good job of running through the highlights of P&L activity quarter over quarter, uh, in addition to laying out fourth quarter and full year financing activities. So I'm not going to repeat that here. Uh, we also uh, just filed our 2020-10-K uh, prior to or during the uh, course of this call. So the 10-K also includes uh, a summary of important business and financing events, uh, including those which occurred subsequent to year-end. In particular, we've included an update on new supply agreements, and John just touched on that uh, in his comments. Uh, and we make uh, note of the substantial completion of a new January 2021 $500 million ATM. So I would encourage everyone to please take a look uh, at the 10K. Uh, overall, considering our year-end cash position, over $800 million, as you saw in the release, uh, and the financing activities subsequent to year-end, we believe we are well capitalized and in solid financial position as we approach the commercial launch of our COVID-19 vaccine. Back to you, Stan. Okay, let's turn to slide 19. As we reflect on the extraordinary progress Novavax made in 2020, we remain focused on delivering key clinical and regulatory milestones, as well as executing our global manufacturing and commercial plans in collaboration with our partners. In parallel, we will continue to advance dialogue with global regulatory agencies as we seek authorization and licensure for 2373. Before I open the call for questions, I want to thank our entire Novavax team for their incredible contributions this year. I would also like to thank our various partners, a few of which include the U.S. government, CEPI, 
the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the COVID-19 Prevention Network, whose immediate response to the pandemic and continued support helped make possible our accomplishments during the year. Only through these combined efforts have we been able to achieve these outstanding developments and become a part of the global solution to the COVID-19 pandemic. With that, I will now turn it over to the operator for Q&A. Thank you. As a reminder, in order to ask the question, press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. And your first question comes from the line of Kalichi Chakir with Jeffries. Thank you. Good afternoon, and thank you for taking my questions. Uh, congratulations on all the progress and success over the last year. I guess my first question is just related to your manufacturing. I'm hoping you can provide additional color around your manufacturing and where you are there. Are you able to provide any color on your monthly production capacity or your ability to stockpile vaccine right now? And I guess related to that, how quickly would you be able to go from EUA authorization or approval to actually shipping vaccine? If you could provide any color there, that would be great. And I have one follow-up question. Yeah, this is Stan. I'll take that. Uh, so we have, as we mentioned, so we, we tend to focus on, on manufacturing sites that manufacture the antigen. Uh, that's probably the most complex part of the manufacturing. And so we've established those in, in uh, 10 countries, and they are now all making product at GMP scale. They're either doing it, they've finished their engineering runs, they're making product at commercial scale, and the cadence of that production process depends in part on how, how many runs that they've um, put into their schedule. And those runs depend upon making sure we have enough raw materials, for instance, to make all those runs. So, so there's some scrambling to get enough raw materials to make all the plants work at, at, at uh, full speed, but I think we're getting there. And so I, the expectation is, is that, that all of the plants will be at full scale by April. So in April, May, June, we should be uh, finishing, filling and finishing uh, product in advance of, of uh, regulatory approvals. We're now filling and packaging uh, material both in the United States uh, and from Korea and uh, and and finishing those in in Europe and the US and and so we will have material that will be on the shelf when we have approval so for shipment got it got it that's very helpful thank you and I guess with respect to your ongoing non-human primate work with your variant vaccines could we see that data in Q2 and I guess related to that, given your experience with uh, 2373 and non-human primates, what would data pretend or suggest as to the immunogenicity and efficacy of your variant vaccine in humans? Your thoughts there would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, well, this is, uh, th thank you. Um, it has turned out that the animal models were quite predictive. So we had very good efficacy in, uh, in the non-human primates. Um, so, you know, that's why we use them. Uh, they are not perfect models because they're not really mm -hmm. disease models, but they are physiologic in that they require a vaccine-induced immunity to get to the mucosal surfaces. So I think it's overall bode quite well. The other animal model I'd point to non-human primate is the baboons, where we did 
some initial just, you know, sort of safety and immunogenicity studies, and they were quite uh, predictive. So, uh, you know, we, we like, I also like the mouse models. They all are telling us something. Nothing is completely aligned with human disease, but they've all been informative, and I think they all pointed us to the kind of efficacy we actually saw in the, in the human trial, which is, you know, really a remarkable circle. You, you know, we, we, you know, we always, as soon as we have results that are, that we think makes um, sense to publish, we get out to the peer review. We have a really good receptivity with high journals. So, uh, you know, quarter two, probably, um, we'll see. You know, we, we're, we're going to be uh, always at the beck and call of peer review, you know, uh, reviewers. So, but we have great data, great science, and I, you know, that, that's not unreasonable to expect we should have data in that time frame. Got it. Perfect. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Eric Joseph with J.P. Morgan. Uh, good evening. Thanks for taking the questions. Um, just wanted to get a better sense of where discussions are with FDA on the path to an EUA for 2373. Does the current um, guidance for uh, potential submission in the second quarter um, anticipate filing after having efficacy data from Prevent19, or do you still see a path to starting the process on the basis of the UK and South Africa trials? And then secondly, as a follow-up, um, as it relates to um, the, the planned trials with the new variant um, and bivalent uh, vaccines, I guess with FDA's guidance, um, Sounding like immunogenicity would be sufficient for approval. There is the expectation of the trials that you're initiating. Would they would they be sufficient for, uh, or they be intended for registration? Thanks, well, Eric. I'll just make a quick comment and then I'll turn it over to, to Philip uh, Dubosky, our chief medical officer. You know, we're operating on the assumption that the UK data could form the basis for an EUA. Um, we have, as you as you rightly pointed out. A good backup in a you know large pivotal trial, so you know that's sort of that's so how we're organizing our, our submission and our submission strategy. So I think with that, I'll let Philip talk a little bit about the variant strategy. I guess the other point about the phase three studies is that the endpoints are really aligned between all three of them. Uh, so um, the FDA is well aware of what our endpoints are, and they've seen the protocols from the other studies as well. Uh, on onto the variant. Um, situation. We've gotten guidance from um, a bunch of different global regulators about the approach to getting these things uh, licensed. And uh, no one is suggesting we do efficacy studies. This, this is all about showing safety, um, but more importantly, uh, non-inferior immune responses to the variant uh, versus the original strain. And that's a strategy we plan to follow. The studies we have in mind um, do two things. They, they look at uh, the variants by themselves as well as in a bivalent format. Uh, we think the latter is really where we want to be. It, uh, we, we think that uh, the difference between the prototype strain and the current strains that are circulating in South Africa and Brazil represent uh, a very broad range of antigenic spread, and that's what we're going to capture with our vaccines. We, we know we can do uh, bivalent easily. There's plenty of space in our vaccine for antigen uh, doses that high. You know from our phase one and phase two studies, we went up to 25 micrograms without having problems with that. So uh, we think we have a, a solution here to the problem. 
great. Thanks for taking maybe just thanks for taking those questions. Maybe just as a quick follow up. Um, um, Ace, at this point, can you say anything in terms of regionality where you would be conducting the 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 uh, planned trials with the uh, bivalent candidate? Thanks. So the uh, different regulators have given us slightly different study designs we need to take into account, and we haven't finalized the exact location where the studies will be executed. Okay. Thanks for the, taking the questions, and congrats on the progress. Thanks, Eric. Your next question comes from the line of Charles Duncan with Cantor Fitzgerald. Hi, uh, Stan and team. Congrats on a really executing well on an, a really difficult year and thanks for taking our questions. I had a question regarding the EUA uh you know filings. I guess in the in the UK what is can you provide any color on the on the rate limiting steps and maybe same question for the US especially given the answer that you just gave on the previous question. So, yeah, hi, Charles. How you doing? Good. Um, I think that, you know, they both require, you know, similar categories of information, right, around the CMC and around the clinical. So just to give you color on the clinical, as you know, we unblinded because we had a positive uh, interim efficacy that was a yes, that we met our statistical success criteria. So that represents a, a final analysis. Uh, however, we, you know, continue to collect cases in a blinded fashion, and so we'll, we'll analyze those, just like you saw with Moderna and Pfizer. It's another sort of second analysis of the of the endpoint cases. So we're doing that, and uh, I, we expect to finalize uh, most of that data probably in early April uh, timeframe, and then that would be that shortly thereafter will be submitted to, to frankly, to both. Uh, regulator. So, so that's you know that's one piece, and then the other piece is the you know package around our CMC. So, uh, right now I think you know um, those are the th those are you know uh, creating intensive efforts, and they're we're looking to try to align you know both those submissions around the same time to get our our uh, MHRA package in. They've been very good um, partners. Uh, lots of communication, uh, so that's been quite helpful. And, uh, you know, similarly, we'll, we'll, we'll have that uh, kind of dialogue with the FDA, same topics. And as I, as I mentioned, we are hoping that the FDA will view the UK package as, as, a, as a potential basis for licensure. But we also, you know, are really close on the heels of that information with the, with the U.S. trial. And so, you know, um, uh, there, there could be some hybrid of, of those two trials, but a very robust package to prevent regulators with respect to safety and efficacy of our vaccine. And what I think makes, as we've mentioned, so uh, really important is we have done this in the context of evolving virus. So that's a tremendously valuable uh, chunk of information, not only for us, but the world, but I think regulators will, will you know, like that um, as part of our our presentation. Okay, that's that's helpful, Greg. I appreciate that. The uh, second question that I had is regarding the U.S. Prevent 19 trial. 
neat thing is that you enroll it very, very quickly, two-to-one uh, randomization to the uh, experimental arm. But I, I guess I'm wondering if you think that that may call it modulate the case rate, if you will, given that the case rate is falling, could you could you see a slightly, uh, you know, slower case rate accrual in that trial, um, you know, of course not compromising the actual data? I mean, we're, we're, this is Philip, we're all aware of the, the cases across the U.S., and I, I think we have a couple of things playing in our favor. One of them is you saw the slide with the geographic diversity and the, and the sites in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So we really did span the United States as, as, and, and additionally with the sites in Mexico. So we have a good chance of hitting places that are hot. Um, I guess the other advantage we have is just the sheer size of the study. Uh, you know, we were able to demonstrate convincing efficacy in a study of only 4,000 uh, individuals in South Africa. Here we have 30,000. So the case accrual is going to be a lot, lot faster. Um, we, we know that variants are emerging in the U.S. On the other hand, we know that this particular vaccine works against those variants. So we have high hopes of having a, a pretty um, robust response. What's going to likely be uh, the critical path activity is actually the safety database. So we have guidance from the FDA to, and we know exactly what they want to see. And it's, uh, it's seeing have the people having two months safety after their second dose. So uh, that's kind of the target we're thinking about as when we can wrap this up uh, in the optimal package for the FDA. But like Greg said, uh, should we achieve the endpoints earlier, we'll have the uh, interim analysis to bring to the FDA if, if, uh, if they're dissatisfied with what we can bring to them from the UK and South Africa. It's great, Philip and Greg. Uh, last question for John and or Stan. Uh, you've built a big company quickly in this last year, and I guess I'm wondering if you could provide a little bit of perspective on how you've been able to maintain quality you know, in terms of standard operating procedures, et cetera, in terms of clinical conduct, manufacturing, and other aspects of your business as you as you really establish this company as a potential leader? Well, I'll take the call uh, because the fun part of my job is, is uh, bringing in, recruiting new people into the company, interviewing them, uh, and... Uh, uh, and and that has been it's been fun because it's it's really quite an easy place to hire really good people. We we have a technology which is from the very start is clear that that matches uh, the problem and uh, and uh, we've got we've had good data all the way back from the earliest primate data that was probably better data than anybody else had and so we've got a now momentum we've got financial momentum. Uh, that, that allows us to go as fast as we can. We've got the we've got the product that is clearly on uh, at the top of the list of vaccines for COVID, and uh, and then you've got a you've got a pipeline uh, that that can build on top of that. So so it's actually a good part of my job. Thanks for taking the questions. Your next question comes from the line of Mayank Mamtani with B. Raleigh Securities. Uh, hi, hi, Dean. Thanks so much for taking my question and congrats on the program.
progress. So uh, maybe uh, just piggybacking on the question addressed before, um, can you, uh, Greg, maybe comment on uh, the FDA guidance document that was put out just relative to your expectations, and I'm you know specifically talking about the lower and upper bound uh, that is said there. Um, uh, just curious, uh, you know, given you start off with a very high neutralizing titers, how should one think about when you know you go and um, go in forward and and think about bivalents or even boosters uh, specifically? Well, there's some details that need to be defined about the assays, but you know I think what we have going for us is our vaccine is highly immunogenic, and so um, we're and, and the other piece we have to give us some insights is, is the animal data seem to be really quite you know predictive for what we we need to know. So I you know I I, I do think that there are some options we're considering around the assays themselves. You know exactly what. Uh, and, and maybe some negotiation, but I'm not worried that, you know, non-inferiority is a relatively low bar, uh, and, you know, given um, that we can come up with the right measures, I think we should be, you know, we're, we're not terribly concerned that, that that's a, a something we can cross. Uh, you know, that does need to be negotiated. The neutralizing assays have, have been, you know, uh, uh, somewhat of a challenge for people to develop. Uh, but you know we're a year into the epidemic, and I, I'm, I'm confident we can come up with a way to, to take a look at the relative immune responses. And NI is a relatively low bar, as I mentioned. So well, these don't have to be big trials. Uh, actually, Peter Marks, you know, noted that as well. I think it's a very attractive offer to uh, go the way of flu and allow the strain change mentality to 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 be uh, you know taken up by a company. So, you know that how does that boil down to what we might do? Well, we get to do a pivotal trial. You know, it could be the next trial we do is structured to be a pivotal trial, and we won't be doing efficacy as Philip mentioned. So, um, that to me is you know is quite attractive. And I don't know, Philip, if you want to add anything to to, to what I said there. Oh, but, no, but the FDA guidance specifically mentions there's flexibility to have a discussion with them, and, and these are going to be science-based um, uh, discussions, and we, we have our own ideas that we'll bring to the table and, and see if they can concur with us. And, and maybe uh, any update you could provide uh, what, what all this kind of means in terms of uh, development in flu, because um, the vaccine efficacy study would probably be, you know, relatively difficult to, to conduct. So uh, any update you have on that, um, just, just as an extension of the previous question, and then I just have one follow-up. Uh, not really. I mean, we are, as you know, in the background, we're, Thinking about how to do flu, is there some work going on at the formulation right now? We haven't really announced a trial or, or what our clinical plans are yet, but we're extremely interested. And as you as you say, I mean, one of the things that that we were kind of gratified to see with the variant is that we had this theme embedded in our flu data, but you know, only only really validated by immunogenicity, that the adjuvant and the nanoparticle had the ability to give a broad qualitatively broad response, so it made the, the, the flu vaccine, you know, able to cope quite well with the strain, uh, the uh, genetic evolution, and in this case, of H3N2. So we're kind of, we're gratified now both to see, you know, efficacy with the nanoparticle against uh, RNA virus like we have, that's very high, and also this idea that the broad 
uh, immunity might result in protection against a, a really major, in this case, this is a major uh, uh, antigenic drift away from neutralizing antibodies, as Philip mentioned, kind of at the extreme of what might be possible, and yet our vaccines seem to be working pretty well against that. So, so I do think it does validate the technology, the matrix M, the importance of matrix M, and the science we had around, you know, inducing immune responses to epitopes that might not normally be well seen in, in, in natural infection, but are brought out by making the nanoparticle uh, a vaccine. So good, good validation, I would say, with our clinical data. Right. Thank you. And and the final question I had was, um, in terms of uh, uh, supply in the late one two Q time frame when uh, you know you are getting close to your filings, and any update on what um, those levels you would be at, and and how would you think about delivering to U.S. versus ex-U.S. Western economies at that point? Well, that's a complicated. Well, it's not a complicated question. It's a complicated answer, I suppose. Um, it is, we plan on being in full production at all of our plants by the May-June time frame. And, uh, and so if we get, uh, and we will have been building inventory to ship, our hope is, is that we, uh, I think our stated hope is, is that we'd be shipping, uh, be able to ship uh, roughly 110 million doses to the U.S. government uh, by July, and, uh, and that's still our goal. So. Uh, and then XUS is going to be supplied from several different locations outside the U.S. and and uh, the first doses will go into the U.K. Uh, assuming that they have the first approval and and uh, so we've got various sources for that. Great, thanks for taking my questions, team. Your next question comes from the line of Vernon Bernardino with H.C. Wainwright. Hi, uh, everyone, and um, congratulations on the progress. Um, I think it can't be said enough that um, you guys are being mentioned in the same um, sentence as a much larger and much um, a better financed um, vaccine players, and you've uh, accomplished a lot in, in the past year. So congratulations uh, from me also. Um, I just have uh, one question. A lot of my questions have already been asked. Um, have you considered a strategy of uh, advancing the uh, bivalent COVID vaccine candidate using a BLA pathway for full approval uh, later this year versus going for uh, emergency use authorization? Um, I ask because of the limitations, uh, um, especially long-term, what comes with uh, EUA? Yeah, I, I... It's an interesting question, but our ability to license the variant is a strain change, and that depends actually on the prototype having a BLA. So I think in the first instance, we're going to have to follow the leader uh, with the variants and be in the timelines that um, that would be established by the prototype vaccine. And and when you do um, advance a bivalent um, COVID vaccine candidate. Do you anticipate um, it? Uh, the, the second component will be a variant um, as part of the strategy, and then the uh, original current um, um, as protein uh, sequence. Or uh, what? Uh, how, how should we look at the bivalent? Um, um, what comprises the bivalent uh, vaccine candidate? 
our, our current concept is just that. So, uh, so we think that uh, this, the antigenic in, uh, space, which equals immunologic space between the original strain and where it has evolved to now is quite broad. And we want to be able to bring uh, immunologic solution to all that uh, antigenic diversity. So uh, right now, the uh, strains that we are seeing in Brazil and South Africa seems to define the extreme of where the virus has evolved. So in the first instance, our first bivalent will be that sort of a product. And then last question I have is, um, so obviously um, these um, 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 proteins, um, uh, yours is a, a protein uh, approach, um, expose themselves to a lot of uh, immune um, um, uh, activity and therefore, uh, there could be many different species of uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, antibodies uh, uh, created against them. What do you anticipate uh, as far as the kind of species and kinds of protection that um, you may see with your COVID vaccine that perhaps uh, you also saw with the, the RSV and um, um, Manaflu uh, vaccine? So maybe I can take a crack at that and Greg can, can mop up. Um, I mean, one, one thing we know is that we form native conformation trimers, uh, and that really has translated in the phase one data that we published into high levels of neutralizing antibody, which means we got the conformation right, and the immune response we generated against uh, the, that correct native uh, conformation uh, is, is works, it's functional. Um, in that publication, we published a correlation between our neutralization response and our IgG response, and it was very, very tight like a Pearson's correlation of 0.94, 0.95. And what that told us is that the, over the broad range of antibodies we did induce, um, it was all proportionally the same amount was neutralizing. So that gives us uh, a lot of confidence uh, that as we uh, move these bivalent products forward, we can induce the same sort of neutralizing antibody. The, the animal work Greg described before will tell us uh, in the next handful of weeks. Uh, and we know from our efficacy data uh, that uh, it's paid off for us in the clinic. And remember, in the case of South Africa, that's a case where previous exposure to wild type, so previous infection with a prototype Wuhan strain, did nothing to prevent illness with the South, Africa, South African variant, yet our vaccine was able to perform quite well. And that's really, a, we believe, a, a function of the adjuvant we use. Yeah, that's great. Perfect. Go ahead, Greg. Uh, not, nothing really to add. That's, that's, a, that's a good that's Nothing to mop up. No, nothing to mop up. <laughs> yeah, well, then, uh, congratulations, and I certainly look forward to uh, um, um, that data because of the academic in me, and congratulations on the year-long uh, progress. Thank you. You have no further questions at this time. And I will now turn the call back over to Mr. Stan Erk for any closing remarks. Great. Well, you've heard our story. We've had just an unbelievable year. Uh, we're, we're a, a uh, significant company of size in many ways and expect to have an even more remarkable 2021. Look forward to telling you about it. Thank you all for, for, for uh, joining. That's it. And this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating, and you may now disconnect.